Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 45. As we come to this psalm that is a wedding love song, I remember mixed feelings a few years ago when Prince William married Kate Middleton. On the one hand, if you look at that royal wedding of 2011 in light of the crumbling influence of Britain's constitutional monarchy, no offense, then the golden coaches and pageantry could be seen as a vestigial remnant of an almost obsolete institution. The extravagance and excitement, a cynic might say, were merely expressions of that classically British tradition of keeping tradition for tradition's sake. <laughs> but on the other hand, on the other hand, I think there was something right about that grand celebration. A soon-to-be king marrying his bride still represents hope for the future. And so it was right for the British people to celebrate that marriage in grand style because for all the failures of the royal line, the kings and queens to come will be their kings, their queens. And when something is yours, it's totally right to feel a strong attachment. And so I may not have felt a personal connection on that day, I wasn't moved personally, powerfully, but many of our cousins over there couldn't help but love their king and his bride. We hear that kind of love for the singer's king in verse 1 as we read. His words written and sung to his king are the overflow of his heart. Love spilled with ink on paper. But unlike the royal wedding of 2011, this wedding was universally important. Important not only for the nation of Israel, but for you too. So let's pray for God's Spirit to help us understand what He is saying to us this morning. Would you pray with me? <clears throat> oh, great God and King, you have set your Son Jesus upon the throne, proclaiming Him to be both Lord and Christ through His resurrection from the dead. And you have poured out your Spirit to convict people of rebellion against Him, and to convince us that he is a merciful Savior, full of grace. And fill us now with your Holy Spirit, so that we may hear the song of our King and his bride. That we might see his beauty in your word, so that we may love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In his name we pray. Amen. Psalm 45. To the choir master, according to the lilies, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen, the gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the riches, richest of the people. All glorious, all glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. And many colored robes she is led to the king, and her virgin companions following behind. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Do you know that Jesus has a bride? 
Do you know who she is? The church. That is exactly right. The Bible tells us that Jesus' bride is the church. <laughs> None of this is the church. All of his people together are his bride. That's what it says. And Jesus is very much looking forward to his wedding when finally we will be totally his and he will be totally ours, perfectly together forever. And nothing is going to separate us from him. Now, you understand, there was something that separated us from him for a long time. Do you know what that was? Yeah, that's right. Sin had separated us from him. But that's exactly what the gospel is all about. Jesus came to die so that he could wash us clean from all the wrong that we've done. He did that so when the wedding day arrives and Jesus comes again for us, we will, we will be dressed and ready in garments clean and bright. And so now, because he died and lives again, we know that nothing can stop his wedding day from coming. Because Jesus himself tells us, be ready, be soon. That's why we call this good news. You believe it? Thanks, guys. You can go back. Do turn in your Bibles uh, if you haven't already. Uh, to Psalm 45. As I said before the reading, this love song for a royal wedding is universally important, not only in its original context, but important for you today. And so as we consider this love song, that is Psalm 45, we're going to look at the objects of the singer's love. We're, we're going to consider four things. These are the four main points. We're going to consider his love for the person of the king. Love for the person of the king. Second, love for the reign of the king. His love for the reign of the king. Third, his love for the bride of the king. And then finally, his love for the sons of the king. And so first, let's listen to the singer's love for the person of the king. Now, we have to understand here that there is no clear inscription telling us for which king this wedding song was composed. We can say almost for certain that this was written during the divided kingdom when David's sons ruled Judah in the south and the northern kingdom of Israel went from one bad king to the next. But really, no matter who this king is, you can hear the singer's love for the person of the king in verses 2 through 5. Look there. Now, not every bride has a groom who is called the most handsome of the sons of men. Some have to settle for something like Jenny ended up with. <laughs> but here, the singer praises the king's attractive appearance. Now, lest we think him shallow, however, he goes on to praise the king's gracious speech, which is a quality that his people would have been happy to hear. Because it means that this king, he doesn't speak out of pride, but from a concern to do good to his people. But, but going further, we see that his concern for good does not stop with mere words. It is brought into reality by his military strength. It, it's important to notice that the sword on his thigh in verse 3 is not mere wedding decor. It, in verse 4, his right hand is going to wield that sword. 
doing awesome deeds for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, riding over his enemies who will fall beneath his feet. Now it's this emphasis on the king's righteous cause and his ultimate triumph over his enemies. In this, we, we should hear the echo of Psalm 2. Because this king in the line of David, as this king, he is God's anointed representative, not only to his people, but to all the nations of the earth. It is his job as king over God's people to extend the kingdom of God over the face of the world until righteousness and justice was the norm for all peoples of the earth. The, the nations might rage against him for that, but he will rule in God's place over them. And if they will not kiss the king, call the son of God because he represents God to the people. If they will not kiss the son in humble submission, then they will perish in his path. This, this Davidic king is a terror to those who rebel against the Lord and his rule. But Psalm 2 tells us that he himself, the king himself in his presence, <coughs> is a refuge and a source of joy to all who embrace him as king. And so these personal characteristics are things to celebrate. Think about it. We know how problematic it is when a beautiful person gets into high places on their looks alone. When a handsome man holds power but speaks proudly and serves himself, he is an absolute curse to his people. But when you mix together good looks with gracious words and the ability to get things done, then you are looking at a leader that people love to follow. And so seeing this attractive king and hearing his gracious speech and celebrating his strong commitment to God's righteous cause and kingdom in this world, the hearts of the people belong to this king. They love the person of their king. In this song's original context, however, I wonder how quickly did that love fade? As I mentioned, we are not told which king of Judah is in view here, but from the context, we can actually make a pretty good guess. It's believed that this was written for Joram, son of Jehoshaphat, who sat on David's throne as king of Judah. And if you are a little bit fuzzy on your Israelite history, you can think of Jehoshaphat and Joram, father and son, almost like David and his son, Solomon. Like David, Jehoshaphat did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He had his problems. But in the list of kings of David's line, Jehoshaphat is known as one of the good ones. And after a time, while he was still alive, he passed the kingship to his son Joram, who married a princess from Tyre, the, the same Tyre that is mentioned in this psalm. His bride was the daughter of Ahab, king of Israel, to the north. So the time of this wedding was a hopeful time for God's people. Following his father's reign, they probably wondered if, if the kind of spiritual health 
and physical prosperity that they enjoyed under Solomon would find them under Joram. Maybe they had high hopes for him to be like Solomon at his best, leading the people of God in the ways of God and forward into a time of blessing. But here's the problem. If this was, in fact, Joram, then the years after the wedding were full of deep disappointment. Second Chronicles 21.6 tells us that Joram walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, those rebel kings to the north, as the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So after the wedding, in time, it became clear that Joram's person didn't match the hype or the hope. But really, you have to understand, it doesn't really matter if this is Joram or any other king from David's line. Because if you read their history, none of them lived up to expectations. In their persons, none of David's sons were what they were called to be. Most often, their looks were just vanity. Their words were boastful, and their deeds were selfish. And so in their persons, they all failed to represent God to his people. The, the love that was directed toward them was returned with a steady reign of failures. But that doesn't mean for us today that this song is just a remnant of a fallen kingdom. Because for all the failures of God's kings, God's promises did not fail. Even when Joram was at his worst, Second Chronicles goes on to tell us that even so, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give him a lamp and to his sons forever. You see, God had already made a covenant with David long before Joram ever took the throne. And that covenant with David forms the foundation of the hope that we hear in this song. Because God has promised that one of David's sons would reign as his forever king, over a forever kingdom. And this is where we have to recognize that, like all the Psalms and the whole of the Old Testament itself, the promises of God. And the hope of the people were only ever partially fulfilled in their original context. Because those promises and hopes were all waiting to find their ultimate fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's in Matthew's gospel that we hear that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of the house and the lineage of David. Although failed kings like David and Solomon and Jehoshaphat and Joram are named in his family line, Jesus is the king whose person is totally worthy of all the love that is expressed here. Because what all his forebearers failed to be, Jesus is. We don't know what he looked like. As we heard in the call to worship, Isaiah said that he'd have no beauty if we desire him. And yet, seeing his person in the Gospels, our hearts are still attracted to him. 
Because we see past the outside to his very heart, a heart that is revealed as one that is gentle and lowly in heart and inclined towards sinners and sufferers to help. It's a heart that's full of love, even toward people that have wronged him. And so we love him. Even as Peter said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice that with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. But beyond our attraction to him, we've also heard his gracious words to us, promising rest to weary people, forgiveness to rebels, joy to poor mourners, healing for the sick, a home for lost sheep, and satisfaction for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. To his people, he promises an unshakable kingdom to never leave us or forsake us, to finish the good work that he began in us, to come again so that where he is, we may be also. All this he speaks, and we love him for that grace that drips from his lips. But we love his person. Because not only does he speak, but he fulfills his words with actions. It was he who rode out for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness coming from heaven to earth. When he came to us, to us, his enemies who had rejected God's rule, his arrows did not pierce us. His sword did not strike in wrath. Rather, he allowed himself to be pierced. In the person of Jesus, the king was killed so that rebels would live. Yes, he conquered and subdued us to himself, but he did that by the sacrifice of himself. He died so that we might die with him and rise, passing through death into new life with him. All of this is why our hearts overflow with love for the person of Jesus. What about you? What about you? As the old hymn asks, have you heard him, seen him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among 10,000 own him. Joyful choose the better part. Captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled king. For the rest of our time, we're going to focus less on understanding this song in its original context and more on how the New Testament shows us that this song is ultimately about King Jesus himself. So I want you to pick back up with me and listen in verses 6 through 9 to the singer's love for the reign of the king. The reign of the king. Verse 6 begins with an astonishing phrase. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's not really so shocking until you realize that this singer, who certainly rejects other gods and believes that the Lord, Yahweh, is one, the singer seems to be speaking to the human king, calling him God. Add to that verse 7 where the singer distinguishes between God, your God, and the king who has been addressed as God in verse 6. And what you end up here 
what you end up with is a paradox that is not easily resolved. Here, I, I want you to actually notice how seriously the Hebrew scribes and the pre-Christian translators of the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, how seriously they took their work. They made no attempt at softening this language or correcting what must have been confusing to them, but rather they transmitted, translated faithfully this astonishing phrase. And although this is somewhat mystifying in the original context, and, and even though the close relationship between the rule of the Davidic king and the rule of God himself may allow for the throne of the human king to be called God's throne, even so, there is a depth of meaning here that is hard to fathom. As one said, this is an example of the Old Testament language bursting its banks to demand a more than human fulfillment. And so we shouldn't be surprised that the writer of Hebrews quotes verses 6 to 7 to prove the superiority of God's Son over the angels who first revealed the message of redemption. It, the writer to Hebrews understands that the singer's paradox is resolved by the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God. Seeing Jesus as the once crucified, now risen King, Hebrews 1 says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your when you and I hear the language of Jesus' scepter of uprightness and how he loves righteousness and hates wickedness, we're hearing something about how he reigns over the world, over us. With Jesus on the throne, we live in hope that God's intention for creation in the beginning will be realized. Fully divine, also fully human, Jesus will rule over all things in a way that makes things flourish. He'll rule in the way that our first father Adam should have ruled, but didn't. Jesus will right his wrong. And he'll restore this world to the way that it's supposed to be. Now, it's true, as Hebrews goes on to say, that we don't yet see everything in subjection to Jesus like that. Evil abounds. Righteousness and justice seem rare today. But while we wait for the reign of Jesus to be revealed in its fullness, there is a place where his reign is most clearly perceived. And that's in the church, capital C, which is like an outpost of the kingdom of God in this world. Now, you have to understand, I am not suggesting that the church expresses Jesus' reign perfectly. And some churches, lowercase c, reflect his rule more or less than others. But if you want to see what it looks like for Jesus to reign and for his rule to be effective in making things right and just in this world, then there is no other place to see it because here in the church are, are, is the place where rebels are trained by the grace of the king to submit to his good laws, finding in them the wisdom of God himself. Only here do we learn that it really is better to work than to steal, better to be faithful in marriage than to run from one partner to the next, 
Better to be content with what you have rather than coveting someone else's things. Here in our life together under the king, we are finding it to be true that it really is better to give than to receive. Because through such generosity, life is better, not only for others, but for us too. When we forgive each other as he taught us, when we put the interest of others ahead of ourselves as Christ did for us, we are living under the reign of Christ. And anyone who has earnestly pursued this kind of life will tell you that it is good. But I want you to notice again this issue of attraction. The aroma of Christ that is pictured there in verse 8. Look there, the fragrance of his robes that emanates from his person and permeates his palace. That aroma is powerfully attractive to some and powerfully repulsive to others. What is it to you? Are you drawn to the pleasing scent of Christ and His rule? Is it attractive to you? Does it produce love in you? Or are you trying hard to get away from Jesus' rule? Seeing Christ as our King produces love for His person and for His reign through the church. The important role of the church, the bride of Christ, is pictured in verse 9 there, as the queen stands in glorious array at the king's right hand. As another says, not only at the wedding, but in the affairs of state afterwards, his, her place will be at his side. And that's the idea that Paul seems to be picking up in Ephesians 2.6, saying that believers in Christ have already been raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. And so here, I want us to follow the singer's thoughts here as they turn from the love to the king and for his reign to his love for the bride of the king. Look at verses 10 and follow. Here, I, I need to be brief, so we're only going to notice two things here. First, when it comes to the bride, I want you to notice how her loyalty needs to shift. And second, notice how her submission in no way diminishes her, but rather elevates her in the eyes of all. First, I want you to notice how she needs to shift her loyalty. The, the singer calls to her in verse 10 saying, hear, consider, incline your ear. In other words, pay close attention because this for you is the most important thing. He, he tells her, forget your people and your father's house and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. If this was sung at Joram's wedding, then the bride, being the daughter of Ahab, king of Israel, makes this encouragement all the more important. She is being called to leave behind her allegiance to the kingdom of Israel, which stood in perpetual rebellion against the Davidic kings, and give her full loyalty to the king who sits on David's throne. She's been called here to do something like Abraham did long before, to leave his father's house for a better country. And so the bride must bow to her new king in an act of humble submission. And likewise, you, you who would be the bride of Christ, 
then you must renounce old allegiances and cling to Christ alone as Lord. Everything that tends to pull our hearts and minds and affections and money and love away from Him, uh, our families, our careers, our sexuality, our reputations, our retirement accounts, all of these things must be submitted to Christ as Lord. Because if we do not bow in all things to the kingship of Christ, then we live with divided loyalties. And our place at our side is in question. But I want you to know that it is safe to search your heart for these things. Because if you discover in yourself such division, but then lay it at the feet of Jesus, He will not despise you. Rather, gracious words will drip again from his lips, and he will point you to the scars that are in his hands and his feet and his side, assuring you of his pardon and your place with him. Through repentance and faith, he will free you to pursue loyalty to him again, as well as new obedience. That brings us to the second thing to notice as the singer sings his love for the bride of the king. Today, we often assume that submission means diminishment. But look what happens to her. Another said the bride's submission to her partner as both husband and king goes hand in hand with the dignity she also derives from him. His friends and subjects are now hers. She is the gainer, not the loser, by her homage. Just as the people of Tyre in verse 12 come not to the king directly, but come to his bride for favor. So too many people come to Christ through his church. Ordinarily, it is through the ministry of God's word, through God's people, that the Spirit brings people to love Jesus and to submit to Him. The church is God's idea and His ordinary method of saving people to Himself. But this, the beauty of this submission-producing dignity and blessing is what the singer celebrates in verses 13 to 15. The glorious princess in her chamber preparing for her wedding her joy and the gladness of her bridesmaids around her as they process to the palace. These sights that you and I see at every wedding, they are pictures for us of the glory and beauty and joy of Jesus' church today. As she is being ready for her marriage to her king. Now, it's true that for you and me today, we may see the church's problems today. And we are right to name them. Because through the naming of her problems, she may repent of the wrong that is still in her and be cleansed anew by the grace of her husband. But we, we need to learn how to look at the church of Jesus through the eyes of Jesus, our husband. As he sees his bride prepared and coming to him, covered by his gracious provision and his spotless righteousness, the scriptures encourage us to envision Jesus as being more joyous than any other groom on his wedding day. It, indeed, one person suggests 
that the escorting of the bride to her groom is the active equivalent of Paul's phrase in 2 Corinthians 11, to present you as a pure bride to her one husband. And this brings out the emphasis of that very first wedding when the woman was presented to the man who said, at last. And this also brings out the emphasis of the last wedding when Jesus will have the bride for whom he died. For you and me, this vision of the bride ought to encourage us that submission to Jesus is never a path toward shame, nor a path toward the diminishment of joy. Rather, it is the very path toward the fulfillment of all our longings, because all of them are only met in Jesus himself. Will you bow to him as Lord in all things? And renounce old loyalties and old ways. If you will, then he will have you and keep you as his bride, both now and forever. Because even more than the singer here, Jesus loves his bride. After all, Paul reminds us that he gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives. And we ought to love the church. The last two verses focus our attention on the singer's love for the sons of the king. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Here, the singer shifts his speech away from the bride and back to the groom as that your fathers and your sons they're both actually masculine forms so now he's speaking again to the king in the original context the king is being encouraged to look to the future since whatever sons come from this marriage will represent the hope of god keeping his covenant promises to david the king must turn his attention to the raising of his own children now here, and briefly, I, I want to mention a point I don't have time to develop, but you may want to ask about later. Connected to the issue of the bride's loyalty shifting from her father to her husband in verse 10, a similar issue gets raised here in verse 16. There seems to be an emphasis on the new couple's future role as parents over their role as children themselves, children to their own parents. It would be a mistake, I think, to say that the application of these shifts should be merely spiritual, even if spiritual is primary here. There are real implications here for the way you husbands and wives should think and act in regard to your parents and in-laws, both when it comes to your marriage and your own children. But we can talk about that later if you want. But when we think about this text pointing us toward love for the sons of the king, the New Testament picks up this language and it applies it to you. You yourselves are among the many sons Christ is bringing to glory. The gospel message that promises the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus 
also promises that by faith in him, we are adopted into the family of God, becoming heirs with Christ as sons of God. But sisters, don't understand, that is not to diminish your womanliness. This is about the place, the status that you have in the family of God. You are not secondary. You yourself, male and female, in Christ, are sons, full heirs, to reign with Him. And that's the exact language that is picked up in Revelation 5. And that song of the Lamb, celebrating His worthiness and bloody work for our redemption. The singer includes, the singers include an aspect of our hope that you and I do not often talk about. They say of everyone who clings to Christ, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They shall reign on the earth like the king's sons in verse 16. Jesus is committing, is committed to making you princes in all the earth. Under the kingship of Christ, in the age to come, you yourselves will be little kings and queens, extending the kingdom of God for all eternity. Well, that's a sermon for another time, but for now, we need to simply understand how good and right it is for us to love one another as fellow heirs in the family of God. As this psalm closes with a look to the future, a, a future that assured by the gospel, a, a future assured by the gospel that you will, as, as one puts it, reign with your master whose praise will be as endless as this benediction makes it. This, this look for the, for the future is what gets expanded for us later in the story, in the revelation to John. There God gives us a further glimpse of the end of the story when the last enemy Death itself is conquered. All opposing kingdoms have fallen, conquered by the hero riding upon a white horse, upon whom is inscribed the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But church, you understand what comes after the conquest. It's the marriage feast. What follows his conquest by the sword of his mouth is is the reality of which this song was a shadow. It's the marriage of the Lamb to his ready bride, clothed in bright and pure linen. So for you and me, church, as we hear this psalm, it encourages us to get ready. The bridegroom's arrival is closer now than when we first believed. And so, as we step into this week, let's continue putting away old loyalties and cling instead to him. Remembering why we love his person, why we love his reign. Since he has chosen us and died for us, let's work to beautify his bride. And let's encourage each other as children of the king. Because we have a king, and our groom is coming. And that's why we call this good news. You believe it? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this word. Not for this word only, but we praise you for revealing Christ to us as our heavenly husband. Father, he is such a faithful husband to us. It is he who laid down his life fully, giving up, giving up his own life so that we might live and be built up in him. 
Father, encourage our hearts with this gospel of Jesus. And lead us out from it to live in a sacrificially loving way with one another. We pray it in the name of Christ and for his sake, for his glory among us.